Our reading this evening is from Colossians 1. Uh, We're going to read from verses 15 to 20. Uh, If you have one of the church Bibles, uh, then I don't know what the page is, I'm afraid. If someone calls it out, then maybe you can find it quicker. But it's in the the New Testament, so about three quarters of the way through the Bible. I'll just give you a moment to find it, if you'd like to. Colossians 1.15 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I'm going to invite Philip, who's going to expand on this. Let me pray for you as you come up. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to learn something afresh from you. Please anoint the words that Phil has prepared, the words that he speaks now. Would you speak powerfully through him? Would we receive what it is from you? And would it impact our hearts that we might be radically changed through this, your good news? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just uh, just for your help this evening, um, I've put on your tables um, a little worksheet. Um, if you struggle to, to concentrate um, over the next 20 minutes or so, there are some key words <clears throat> on, that, on, on that sheet. Um, and and the, the game is to tick off the words as I mention them. There is a funny one, Merv. You'll just have to get over that, listen out for it. When I say the word Merv, just put a little tick next to it. That will hopefully and all the others, of course, hopefully help you concentrate. Um, And and it gives us the questions there as well, um, but also the points. So let me start by asking the question, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? Now, you don't have to answer. I I I can tell you're desperate to answer, particularly young people whose parents are here. I heard a a, a story a few years ago about a DJ on a local radio station in Washington, D.C., he decided it would be nice uh, to phone up the ambassadors from various countries in the U.S. capital and ask them what they wanted for Christmas. When he took the call, the British ambassador, who was new to the post, simply said, oh, I really don't want much at all, uh, to be honest. He said, I'll be very happy with some aftershave and a new pair of slippers. So Christmas morning came round, and the DJ came on air to share the things that the various ambassadors of the world wanted for Christmas. We called the French ambassador, he reported. And he said his Christmas wish is for peace and goodwill to all men. The Chinese ambassador said he wanted an end to the hunger and disease throughout the world. The Swedish ambassador wanted an end to the violence in the Middle East. And slightly left of field, the British ambassador wanted aftershave and a pair of slippers. 
What we want for Christmas can sometimes be sublime. Sometimes it can be ridiculous. Sometimes it can be selfless. Sometimes it can be selfish. But the question is, what does God give us for Christmas? Well, this is a passage that tells us. Because it tells us that God gives us, in one person, a supreme Lord and a sufficient Savior. And those are the two things I want us to go home with this evening. A supreme Lord and a sufficient Savior. And these are some of the clearest verses in the Bible that teaches us about Jesus' supremacy and his sufficiency. So look at me, look at verses 15 to 17 with me, 17 with me, and we're going to look at Jesus as supreme Lord. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They're exciting verses, aren't they? In saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul is telling us the creator came into this world and became visible to us. So so literally, if you wound the clock back 2,000 years, let's let's throw it to, to, to a year where we know definitely Jesus was around, let's say AD 27, the 8th of December, AD 27, somewhere in Galilee, you could go up to God and poke him. Do do you understand the reality of the person of Jesus in this universe, time and place? He would have told, turned around and gone, hello? That is how, how tangible God came into this world. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not a a made-up story. It's not a a sense of Chinese whispers over the last 2,000 years that has given us this amazingly big story. In history, God was pokeable. And these are not verses just about status. We can't call Jesus just a poor reflection of God. This is about the visibility of God, the presence of God amongst us. So that as we read through the Gospels, we're not just seeing a good bloke walking around being magical or God's lesser son, as many of the cults will have us believe in the Gospels. We are seeing exactly what we would expect of God if God came into this world. We are seeing God in all his fullness, not, 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 an, not a jot or iota of, of godness was distilled from Jesus Christ. His, God's entire fullness was in him. And in verse 15, Paul tells us that there was a relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And he describes that relationship as the firstborn over all creation. Again, just to address any misunderstandings, this is a relationship statement. It says, Jesus, our revelation of God, is in relationship to God the Father as heir of the universe. He's fully equal, but at the same time, he submits to God the Father and the will of God the Father. That is Jesus' act of supreme love to God the Father. 
He says to the, God the Father, Father, I submit to you. In your, in your will, in your plan, in your authority, in your power, in your might, I submit to you, even though I have that same power, authority, might, and, and, and uh, amazingness. That is relationship. That is love. It's sacrifice. It's giving. It's submission. And that's what firstborn over all creation means. And it says also that whatever has existed, Jesus is Lord over. One day he will receive that inheritance, which is this world. And one day he will return to this world as Lord and Master. Fully God. Fully man. Terrible in his glory. Mighty in his majesty. This is our God. And the purpose of these verses is to get us to understand the supremacy of Jesus. That you cannot go anywhere in the infinite universe that was not personally created by him. His mastership signature is everywhere from the tiniest atom to the greatest galaxy. And it's not just what is governed by the laws of physics that is at his his fingertips, but it's the spiritual realm too. Angels and demons are at his beck and call. Do not ever doubt it. And therefore, if he is Lord over the powerful spirits who are not seen, then being Lord over what we can see, whether it be rulers or kings or parliaments or dictators or celebrities, that's easy for him. When we marvel at our world leaders and the power they wield, that is nothing compared to the one who, gave, who gives them breath every second of their lives. That's all in a day's work for Jesus. When we wow at celebrities, when they roll down the red carpet, well, let's recognize how much more glorious is the God on the throne of thrones, the King of kings, who gives them breath. That's Jesus putting them in their place. And let's remember this world was not just created by him, but it was created for him. That when he comes to this earth in glory at the end of time, we will see him face to face. That too is a physical time and uh, time and place. So we can wind the clock forward, however much time it is. Wind it forward and there Jesus will come to this earth again in physical form, full of glory. And we will see him. And we will marvel at his plan of salvation. We will be able to see how that plan has unfolded through history over time since the time was created. That is the majesty of Jesus. His power is awesome. His might is glorious. And and, and we will have to come to a point in our lives where there is nothing more to say about him apart from simply falling on our faces in worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords who is supreme in his splendor. Nothing else will do. And today we need this reminder at Christmas because our popular culture reduces the incarnation of Jesus to a baby in a manger who's cute and asleep and nothing more. 
Add to that the layers of Christmas tat and tinsel and and the competition for the best feel-good Christmas advert. It's easy to forget that Jesus Christ, born to Mary, in that manger, lacked nothing of the power and might of the Son of God that brought the world into being that was created out of nothing. The baby in that manger said, let there be light. And light had no other option than to obey. There is the gift of God this Christmas. This is not sentimental tat. It's not going to go into the drawer on the 27th of December when we've finished with it. It can't do. Neither was Jesus a powerless wish for world peace. Oh, lovely sentiments, isn't it, from all the other ambassadors. Actually, interestingly, the British ambassador probably was the only one who actually got what he wanted for Christmas. But you know, God's gift to this world was power beyond power. Isn't that incredible? And wisdom beyond wisdom. Oh, how I I imagine many thousands, millions of people were standing there at at the the night Jesus was born thinking, oh, when when will all the problems in this world end? It's been a, a universal question since the beginning of time. When will all the problems in this earth end? And here is God's answer. The incarnation of the invisible God in all his fullness, in all his deity, in all his majesty. That tells us, listen, if you are struggling with the concept of who is God, if you are wondering whether God is in existence, wind the clock back. There is God in human form. And even more, see him and the work that he does in our lives for his glory. The work to bring us into relationship with God. It's peerless. And whereas ambassadors will want world peace, actually, Jesus gives us peace in eternity. And only him in his supremacy can manage that. Because it's only God who dies on the cross who can bear the eternal wrath of God on the cross. It's only God in his supremacy who can bring us into relationship with God in his supremacy. Nothing else will do. This is the supreme Lord we worship. God didn't hold back, did he? He didn't send an angel. Oh, that'll do, he said. No. He came to be one of us. This is our God. And the second thing that Paul describes is a sufficient saviour. The flow of the passage goes like this. If we accept that Jesus is supreme over all creation, that his work on the cross, then we have to accept that his work on the cross is sufficient to save us. Because logic doesn't make sense either. The logic doesn't make sense any other way. In other words, supreme saviour dying on the cross Nothing makes sense unless Supreme Saviour dying on the cross actually did something powerful and and, and wonderful there. Otherwise, it's just a gesture of 
hey, hello. If Jesus came into this world to die on the cross, it means that he is a sufficient saviour who died on the cross. Let's look at verse 18 with me. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this supreme person, Jesus, is the most important person in the church. That's what he means by he is our head. He's also the first to rise from the dead. So that all who trust in him will rise from the dead too. That's what he means by he was the firstborn from among the dead. And all the fullness of God dwelt in him as he came to this world. It means he has the power of God fully in him as he walked this earth. So that even when he was a baby boy in the manger, the power that was working in him sustained the heart of Herod that was out to kill him. And if he was the fullness of God, then his work was God's work on the cross. And his blood that flowed down his body was God's blood. And the wrath of God, and as the wrath of God was poured over his spirit, he completed God's work that he had begun in order to bring us to God. His blood-bought gift was peace with God. So that through his work and through his work alone, we might have eternal life and peace with God. And it means that Jesus is a saviour whose great sacrifice is all we need for salvation from God's wrath. Jesus, as a saviour, is the only one who can deal with our heart attitude towards God and God's wrath against us. It's like he stands in between. On the one hand, dealing with our heart. On the other hand, dealing with the wrath of God. Only supreme God can do that. And it means we can't add anything to that work. Really, we can't. You know, one of the reasons why this whole passage is in the Bible is because um, the, the, the Colossians, the people that Paul was writing to, felt that, that legalism, in other words, following laws, and particularly Jewish laws, needed could be added to Jesus's work to make them right with God others in the Colossian church felt that a special revelation made them right with God in addition to the cross but Paul reminds them here that it's insulting to God who gives us Jesus to believe that we can add our works or our knowledge to Jesus's death in order to somehow boost the effectiveness of it. It's an insult, isn't it? I had a friend called Merv. There's your word. I had a friend called, I have a friend called Merv. And his granddad was an antiques restorer. 
As a lad, Merv would watch his granddad in his basement painstakingly fix beautiful old furniture and then finish them with layer upon layer of French polish. And one day, Merv's granddad was upstairs making a cup of tea. And Merv, in, in, in desperation to help, decided to add another layer of varnish to a beautiful walnut table that his granddad was working on. And when Merv's granddad came downstairs to the basement and saw what Merv was doing, he just burst into tears. Merv, he cried, Merv. It was finished. It was finished. That last layer of varnish had been applied. No more work needed to be done. By adding to it, Merv had just ruined it. And I hope that illustrates what Paul's trying to get the Colossians to understand, get us to understand here. Jesus' work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, are sufficient. It's enough on its own. Nothing else is needed. His work was perfect. Now, for Christians today, it's fair to say that we sometimes almost unknowingly slip into behaving as though it's not. And that's because, actually for everyone here, it's because our sinful hearts are always wanting to have something to take to God and say, look, look at me. I've done this, or I am this, or I'm being this, and hey, we're cool, aren't we? That's what our hearts want to say to God. And and it might not be that we're putting confidence in, like, ancient times, Jewish laws and traditions, But it could be that we've started to put our confidence in circumstances, in our education, even our family, or our status, or or, or our moral decency. I'm a good person, God. I really do think I'm owed a bit of heaven from you. Perhaps even more subtle than that, it might be that we've started to put our confidence in religious things to make us right with God. Things like baptism, like we heard Josh this morning. If I get baptized, I'll be right with God. That was his thinking as a 15-year-old. It was not true. That's what he said. Or reading the Bible. If I read the Bible this morning, my day is going to go better. Or saying prayers, or going to church, or even evangelism, telling others about Jesus. But here's a couple of questions I nicked from the Discipleship Explored course that help expose that. Listen carefully if you can. When you've let Jesus down, when you've sinned in some way or are feeling guilty about it, do you feel less of a Christian than you were before? When you think of a non-Christian friend, do you feel guilty for not praying hard enough for their salvation? When someone asks you, are you a Christian, do you answer yes, but secretly feel like you're not a very good one? In a week where you've read your Bible consistently, been to church and shared the gospel with your friends or colleagues, 
do you feel more acceptable to God? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then we must be careful. Because we're beginning to live as though Jesus is not sufficient to make us right with God. We're beginning to add other things to his salvation, his work on the cross and resurrection from the grave. But let's correct our thinking for a second. From what Paul's written here, can we really say that when, we've, when we disobey Jesus in some way, that makes us any less of a Christian than we were before? No. Because Jesus is all sufficient to make us right with God. Can we really believe that a person's salvation is dependent on Christ's blood and our prayer? No. Because Christ is sufficient to make us right with God. Can we really live as though a good day relies on the amount of time we put in the Bible? No. Because Christ is sufficient to make us right with God. Can you see why God gave us Jesus on that first Christmas? We need nothing more than his love and his forgiveness for our sin. And his work on the cross, oh, there is nothing sweeter. There's nothing more humbling. And, and it's true on the face of it, it does seem weak, doesn't it? Here is God so-called supreme, suffering and dying. It does seem weak. How do we solve the problem of world peace? Jesus dying on the cross. How do we solve the Middle East crisis? Jesus dying on the cross. How do we end world poverty? Jesus dying on the cross. It does seem weak. In many ways, it seems on the surface of it, it looks, that, looks on the surface of it that sending a little baby boy to deal with the deepest problems of this world, it sometimes seems to be as powerful as sending a pair of slippers to mankind for Christmas. But when we look at the truths of this passage, the reality of who Jesus is, we understand the mighty work of the Incarnation the great gift of God, that first Christmas, that works peace, true peace, not a surface peace, but a peace with God. It might be this evening, you have no peace with God. You're troubled in spirit. That God to you is a write-off. God to you is someone you don't want. But the very God you don't want has given you a gift you need. Will you take it this evening? His gift is Jesus, supreme. His gift is Jesus, 
sufficient. Will you take it this evening? Let's pray together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things through his blood shed on the cross. Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, supreme over all this world, over creation, over all things seen and unseen. We ask this evening that you would, in our hearts, just unveil yourself. Reveal Jesus to us, I ask, that we might see him and worship him and adore him. Father, forgive us when we seek to, uh, to, to seek a salvation that is dependent on our status or deeds or attitudes or morality. Father, may we run to the cross and seek the sufficiency of Christ there. Father God, I pray this evening that we would see our need for Jesus our Saviour and Jesus our Lord. And I ask that you would that you would come into our hearts, into our minds, that we might need you, that we might need you this evening. We pray this in your name. Amen. We've got about five minutes just for the questions to appear. Um, what we do, if you're new here this evening, what we do is we take just a few minutes to reflect on uh, what the speaker said, um, and there are just a few questions to aid us in our discussion. Um, again, uh, after, after about five minutes, Chris is going to come and, um, and, and end our service. Thanks. Thanks.